and welcome to Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. And I'm your host, Donna Bishop. And today I'm joined by two fantastic guests. Today we have Natalie Atkinson in the studio. Natalie is a freelance culture writer and a columnist with The Globe and Mail. Natalie worked as a fashion critic for more than a decade and for several years was also the award-winning editor of the National Post Style and Design section. Thanks for being here, Natalie. Thank you. And joining Natalie and I, we have Nicholas Malamphy. Nicholas has a long history as an executive in luxury retail, including relaunching the luxury salon The Room with the historic Hudson Bay Company. He is currently working on a new luxury retail concept and works freelance as a consultant to major design houses here in Canada. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. So excited to have you guys here. We are going to be diving into the world of luxury fashion today, but before we get started, I want to ask you both about a moment when fashion changed your life, when it felt like it had impact or influence on you. Natalie, can I start with you? Sure. I think if I had to trace it back from to its very beginnings, the first time I realized that clothing was important, and that's sort of the genesis of how I look at things, is in books, namely in Trixie Belden books, Ooh. which were these adventure, girls' adventure stories. And Trixie sort of was self-conscious about her looks relative to her friends, but she was also a bit of a tomboy. And it was the first time that I remember seeing how clothes can be self-fashioning, how they can you know, carve an identity or you can position yourself in in your community through clothing. And of course that continued throughout the 80s, you know, watching tell like you know old movies and costume design and for me clothing is really associated with narrative and identity. So, I love it. Yeah. Social document. How about you Nicholas? Well, I don't really identify myself as a fashion person, but I know for me like the most um probably the time the moments that I really really looked at fashion was pop culture references. So like, you know, Olivia Newton-John's Hollywood Nights special in 1980 where she's wearing like this magenta beaded jumpsuit. And um, I remember thinking, and I feel like that has kind of um, led the direction of my career, almost those kind of things. So like Dynasty and that whole 80s kind of look. Well, and the 80s had such a luxurious element to it. So I'm sure we'll be touching on the 80s as we get into our conversation today, which is all about the arc of, of luxury fashion. So I want to start at the start at the beginning. Natalie, can you give me just a little bit of a sense of where did this notion of luxury fashion begin? Like, I think we can all conjure brands in our minds um, that are kind of got their foothold in that category. But can you just give a bit for people who, who aren't really familiar, how did this whole notion begin? I think the, I think the modern uh, idea of luxury fashion and the, that positioning starts really where a lot of modern fashion can be traced back to, which is uh, just before the French Revolution and the court of Marie Antoinette and her dressmakers creating the trends, but also creating really special pieces for the queen and the court. And there being an awareness among the people who weren't partaking of that luxury of what it was. And then perhaps more recently, I tend to think that luxury doesn't really exist without its opposite, which right. is mass and, uh, and you know, homemade and very affordable and manufactured. So the Industrial Revolution would be the second place I would pinpoint on that line, perhaps. And Nicholas, you've worked with so many design houses, many of which are strongly rooted in a historic luxury category. Um, Dior's, how does the brand, how do, how do the brands we know of as luxury come to be? Like I know Hermes started in equestrian 
activities. There's always there's often an element of leisure in the brands we know of. Yeah, and I think lifestyle focus as well. I think that was I think when you look at the Gucci, um, the history of Gucci, and it started with um, Gucci o Gucci working as um, a bellman at the Savoy and seeing you know the upper class people how they travel and how they live, and I think that kind of re- was reflected in the direction that that company took. And the same with something like a Chanel, right, where it comes it comes in tandem with the rise of media, whether it's late 19th century fashion plates depicting the life that these these largely the women are leading on the promenades of Paris in the clothes that they're buying and or having made. And Chanel really capturing that in the 20s where she's not just selling a little black dress, she's selling the images of herself with her various lovers on yachts and in the Côte d'Azur and people are buying into that. Well, there's always this push and pull between the actual value of the item created and the perceived value of of being a part of that story, right? Yes. Yes. Is that something that you've worked with, Nicholas, like that idea of the like what is the actual value of a luxury good? Like are they really made better or differently than than the mass things? Yeah, I I mean I think, you know, the quality of the fit and the quality of the the fabric. There's so many elements of it that do elevate the product. And I think, you know, to your point, I mean, the fact that people want to live an elevated life or aspire to that um, makes there's the value there. What brands do you think maintain that brand story or that perceived value really well? Because that must be part of why they have the longevity, because that that element has been really well preserved and protected. Well, I think, you know, like any of the brands that maintain a standard is, I I like the Hermes or Chanel or um, uh, Louis Vuitton or Dior, they they have managed to maintain a level of standard in which they operate that has um, kept their brands strong and focused and um, elevated. Because there are brands... If I can jump in, that, yeah, that, jump in, that sort of pretend to do that or pretend to have those values. Um, well, just I, what you could call the massification of luxury in the last decade or maybe the last 15 years, which always conflates and confuses when we talk about luxury because luxury isn't, I mean, it is about price because you're working backwards from the price of what something costs to make. Mm-hmm. But it's also about this idea of the integrity of the product, right? The craftsmanship, the quality. And I remember the Victorian Albert had that show a few years ago on sort of wondering what is luxury and what does it mean? And it's actually time. You know, people use that now when they're talking about self-care and life work balance. But the the sort of the time that it takes to create something well in a in a in an elevated way, can't you can't fake that. You cannot mass produce it, you cannot accelerate it. And so I think the brands, like you say, um, are, you know, and not necessarily every product that brand makes, which we should also make that no, distinction. That's a good it's, point. It's not even just the haute couture. I mean, there are brand extensions and licenses and other things, but the brands like Hermes and and Chanel and and the where the the key product is still has that integrity. Well, and I think you bring up something really interesting is that notion of, you know, it does take time to make something really well, but there have been a number of forces that have, I think, diluted that. And Nicholas, something you and I talked about was the whole notion of how the department store was one of the thin edges of the wedge in terms of kind of diluting the notion of luxury a little bit in terms of how it had to just, there had to be more product in. Yeah, I think, you know, the the big department store chains, especially in 
in America, they demanded more product just to keep the floor fuller. So I think that was actually the um, the evolution of these second tier brands that are associated to those to those fashion houses. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, many of those brands were. Um, created just for the American market, like um, uh, Armani Collezioni, which is their white label, was created for the American market. Or, you know, you can look at even, you know, in the 80s um, and 90s, like fashion houses like Montana had a secondary collection that was, again, created for the for the North American market just to keep product in the stores. That, that sort of appetite that, uh, you know, the middle class appetite starts maybe in the 20s, 30s, and the department stores are a really big part of that. But then the appetite for that glamour in the 80s, as we've been talking about, is really, it becomes um, mainstream. And then you have the delivery schedule of a department store is every, I don't know what it is now, three or four weeks. And, and now even more recently, we have this Zara and the, the the granular sort of almost minute by minute metabolism of consuming fashion as entertainment, thanks to the internet, that has completely skewed our idea of what um, what luxury could be or is. And that and there's marketing in that too. But luxury, again, it's it, it takes time and it's slow and it's Haute couture, you, you order it and you get it. How, how long? Actually, I don't know. How long does it take for a, yeah, a haute a couture question. piece to be delivered to a client? Gosh, I would, you know, I think, you know, the the authentic couture would be like two, three, four fittings. And then, you know, then it would be shipped. So I would probably think, you know, a season, you know. Wow. That's why, like, um, you know, the fall collections are showing, you know, mid-year instead of, a season before. It's really interesting, the schedule of the couture versus the ready-to-wear collections. Do you think it's unfortunate that we have as a, and I'm going to generalize, like as a consumer society, quality has started to kind of slip as one of our values when we, when we buy things. Like I remember, you know, we went shopping for clothes, like back to school, maybe a special occasion and if something didn't fit. But it's such a, as you were saying, Natalie, shopping as entertainment has become so um, prevalent, but quality seems to be the part of that that's slipping a little bit. Is that, do you think that's the case or am I, or am I you know, kind of painting a brush on, on, on shopping that's not quite fair? I don't know. I mean, I'm the anti-consumer consumer peddler, you know. So, um, <laughs> the, the, like, the noble capitalist. Yeah. Yes. So I feel like, um, you know, it is interesting. Like, I do feel like when you go into the shopping malls, you do see people, it's a family outing to go constantly shopping. And I feel like, you know, in my day, that wasn't really... Well, you went to the mall, but you hung out at the food court and talked. I was about to say we went to eat French fries and check out out what music we were going to buy. (laughs) I... I tend to think that, um, that 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 there's a correction happening. I, you know, um, the the benchmark book that I always think about when we talk about this sort of thing is Dana Thomas's um, Deluxe, Deluxe yeah. How Luxury Lost Its Luster, which is just ten years old now and was written and published on the cusp of the 2008 economic downturn. And I would love to see a follow-up yeah. chapter, although I tend to think it would be a whole book. But what she was doing was kind of filleting what we thought of as and what we'd been marketed to as luxury, which in fact largely wasn't even from some of these big luxury companies because they're multi-pronged now. But um, 
I tend to think that in sort of covering retail and talking to designers as well as consumers and in seeing what's happening on the retail landscape at every level right now, there is a correction happening. And part of that is the message of sustainability on every level coming back to people. And financial sustainability is a big part of that. The idea of buy the best thing you can afford, because as you know, everyone's grandmother might have said to them, you buy cheap, you buy twice because you buy quality and and it it sort of lasts and people want to do that instead of buying into trend and we're not going to see a forever 21 garment in a vintage store 40 years from now no we'll see it in landfill and that's a whole other issue that is a whole yes stay tuned that's a whole series (laughs) yeah there we go (laughs) (laughs) but getting back to that multi-pronged um element of the market that you were just talking about and and i know dana covers it in her book i don't think a lot of people appreciate the nuances of licensing and what it means when a brand goes ipo and how was it that calvin klein and donna karen have all of these kind of like prongs of their business can 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 you guys unpack that a little bit for people I don't I think there's sort of like an education that is lacking when we figure out like how these big brands operate that way uh, well, coming up, in fact, at the Royal Ontario Museum this at the end of this year in November, um, I'm not sure when this will uh, this will be out before that. Mm-hmm. But Dior was famously post-war one of the first to understand how licensing could benefit his business. So he put his name and uh, on perfumes. Sometimes licensing means you allow someone else to manufacture it because you don't have the expertise in perfume. Or I didn't realize or Dior was a pioneer in that regard. He was. In fact, um, Alexandra Palmer, the uh, curator at the Royal Ontario Museum, wrote a great book about it. And it's really interesting because it's, it's a business book. It, it sort of un- unpacks how he did that and how he revived many parts of, of the French specialized fashion industry. But, you know, Pierre Cardin in the 70s is famously a cautionary tale, as is Halston, for over-licensing and losing control of the quality of the brand. And I would argue that as, as although he's a billionaire now, Michael Kors, who began as a designer, you know, really crafting his clothes and having a relationship with his clients, which is, again, that whole luxury experience on every level, became a billionaire, but completely it, it ran away from him. And I think he's the next cautionary tale because the market's been saturated with a shorthand of branding that stands for luxury but really isn't anymore. I mean, it's it's interesting you bring up Pierre Cardin because, I mean, he was extremely successful. He is a very wealthy man, and, and I think he's lost. I mean, he's been lost in the history of – of fashion in in many ways, like people don't look to him as the visionary and that he that was. he mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he was and is, you know. And you're right. I think you know Michael Kors. I mean, he started his career wanting to be thought of as a creator, and now he's just hawking handbags at a mall. I mean, there are all these pressures to to with economies of scale and to make pro, you know, to make profit. And there was, I think, for a long time, the idea of the glamour of selling a lifestyle and being in every part of someone's home. You know, whether it was the the dish towel that was branded and and at every level. And I think there's something nice about the democracy behind that, uh, the democratic impulse behind that. The idea that someone cannot afford a fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollar dress that requires three fittings, flying to Paris and everything else. And so on on the ladder towards that, there's there's all these little places you can you can save up your babysitting. Yeah, you money can insert and, yourself yeah, into that the, ladder. Yeah, and buy the Louis Vuitton keychain, and then you're you're sort of participating in that that luxury myth. However, I I I've been finding with designers that I talked to recently, ten years ago, they all wanted to be Michael Kors and wanted to be behemoths and and sort of be part of people's lives in that way. And now what I'm hearing is the uh, emerging designers really just want to make beautiful things to for a client who will appreciate it and understand why it's worth something. 
And they want to go back to that, which to me seems to be a going back to luxury. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I had probably had eight years old a Pierre Cardin phone, which I felt <laughs> very chic talking on to my friends. Of course, it kept hanging up. It was not a good phone, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. You see these these big designers like Adana Karen, um, Calvin Klein. I was gonna say Calvin Klein is um, in the hotel, hey? You know, Ralph Lauren protected his his um, identity, I think, a little bit better than the other two. But, you know, people don't look at Calvin Klein for the visionary that he was in the 70s. I mean, he was he re reimagined American sportswear, and now we look at him as just a name on the waistband. And, um, you know, at least, you know, the new collection, I think, is doing a little bit to restore that credibility mm-hmm. to that brand. But... Louis Vuitton is a good kind of case study for that because it was, of course, this historic uh, luggage maker, uh, yep. you know, in the same way as Hermes was uh, saddlery. But it was in the 70s before Bernard Arnault bought it in, I think, in the early 90s and transformed it and made it part of this big sort of conglo- luxury conglomerate portfolio uh, that, it, you know, they realized. And I think that was the cue from Pierre Cardin in the late 70s that there was money to be made in selling that dream. And... Again, I, I think there's something nice about selling that dream because most people can't participate in it. It, it does try to make it approachable for everyone. It tries to make it. There is a, a certain attempt at a bridge that this is not like an ivory pinnacle that no one can have access to. Everyone can insert themselves along the way a little bit. Um, is it only about the brands, Nicholas, like when it comes to luxury? Like, you know, if we're participating in this like kind of interesting you know, myth of lifestyle and having a little piece of something magical. It's a, like there's a lot of artifice that happens around in there. Can we have a luxurious experience without worrying about the brand participation, do you think? Um, well, I think the brands are, are paramount for it to be aspirational. I think, you know, it's interesting. There's so many kind of niche brands that are luxury that, um, that, that, true kind of fashion consumers buy into it. I think that's those are the interesting brands. And then you have these big brands that, you know, are amazing um, companies with heritage and um, people want a piece of that, you know. So, you know, like you mentioned a keychain. I, I mean, I've worked in retail for a long time and that keychain customer was – for anyone in retail, they'll tell you is the worst customer on the planet they the because high you know they one hundred percent they want this hundred dollar keychain and they want all the bells and whistles that go with that luxury name and um, you know they're the first people to bring back a keychain with a missing screw and you know they they expect it to last forever you know so it's an interesting kind of thing when you're trying to bridge like you said. Um, you know, that that kind of consumer. Well, here's an interesting consumer question for you, Nicholas, because you've you've worked, you know, one on one with with the brands as well as like interacted with their with their clientele. There's if we're trying to insert ourselves into a brand's narrative, then I want people to know I've bought that that mm-hmm. brand. Does the luxury like the person who's buying, you know, let's to speak crassly, like at the top of the of the brand food chain, they they already live that that life I'm assuming so do they feel the same need for like to have the branding to have that kind of outwardly obvious denotation of of who they have and I'm thinking specifically I remember reading an article uh, in the globe I think Natalie several years ago about India Hicks um, doing a line of jewelry where all the ornamentation was on the inside so you didn't actually see 
the the etching and whatnot, it was it was kind of like a secret, a, a little secret that you knew it was an India Hicks piece, but all of that demarcation was on was on the inside. Well, I mean, it's interesting. You can look at Bottega Veneta, and there are like handbags that are woven leather, and it's not a it's not a logo, but you know right away, like you can identify. And um, I mean, I don't think um, I mean, the reality is people are people, whether they have millions of dollars or no dollars. I mean, we sometimes we almost always want the same thing. That's why it's a trend. So, I mean, it's interesting that some of the biggest luxury brands are famously known for their repetitive logos like an LV or yep. or, you know, like the Gucci double G or um they do, or the double C's for sure. Yeah, They're exactly. One of the, the original double, ones. Exactly. Or the, da- yeah, the Louis Vuitton Damier. I think that there, I'm seeing a, a sort of shift and a um, kind of change in direction in terms of even what the these big companies are putting out at the middle level and, and even at the mass level um, in terms of how much visible logo and branding there is. I think a few years ago, in part with sort of the idea of stealth luxury, but also just the psychology of underst- you know understanding that just because it has a name on it that is uh, high-end or it has a high price tag doesn't necessarily make it a luxury item or a quality product because there's a lot of, you know, product that is priced in a certain way so that it's perceived and it's put in the department store or in the boutique in a certain place. But it's not necessarily as, you know, well-made as it should be or could be. I think that there's a lot of more people understanding and re-educating themselves about what makes a quality product and, and appreciating the design itself. I do think that there was a breakdown when uh, sort of in between the that sort of hiccup maybe of the generation of people not sewing anymore and that kind of revolt maybe a second or I guess we're now in third uh, wave feminism with women in particular not wanting to make the clothes and being able to buy clothes at the mass. And so you lose a sense of what construction is that's beautiful but and then t- then you see it you know i get readers writing in saying how do i know what a good pair of trousers is and i say go go it's trying on clothes is free go try on a pair of trousers and f- try 10 pairs on and you will know which one hangs well and that's this re-education that's happening in the consumer and that's not about branding and visible double m's or or tory birch's little thing on the shoe yeah, no, that's about that's about construction, and I've had similar conversations talking about you know seaming and how things fit and and why why things cost more if they have more buttons and more hems and more. But again, it goes back to whatnot. fabric, and you know a lot of yeah. those um, fashion houses are able to develop their own fabrics and that sort of thing, and I think it 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 changes the way that a product fits, you know. There's also the experience of luxury, which I don't think we've talked about yet. But yeah, I, no. I mean, we keep we are relying on these short the the, the big companies that we think of that uh, that sell luxury. But I would argue that in any community, the people who are making clothes thoughtfully and well and give that customer service experience where you know things are fitted to you and tailored, that's a luxurious experience as well. Absolutely, yes. even though it's not just an idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, way. that's really the one thing right now that can differentiate so much of our businesses is, you know, the experience. You know, like especially with online. Can you have a luxurious experience online? Do you think? Well, I think you know that some of the bigger online retailers are making an effort. I think when people receive a Net-a-Porter box. Well, that's such and a big part of that. It's and, that what you, you know, the, the tissue, and it's yeah. it's a it is a beautiful experience. But that experience ends at that moment, and then it's kind of like, how do you fit it? You know, I used to have that constantly kind of brought to my brought to me. You know, these women that would buy things online and need the next step. 
the service element ends yeah. at, at early. And so what the, what the luxurious part of that is the product they're buying, but also maybe the time they're saving. They think that they're saving by not having well, to I go into the Well, I think, you know, part of the, the, um, the benefit of online is just opportunity to buy product. I think, you know, one of the things that has kind of attacked the whole idea of luxury in the retail sector is, is people being too um, complicit to boredom. You walk into the stores and the level of vision from from the department stores or or the bigger retailers, it's it's not exciting. They're like dumbing down the 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 opportunity to buy fashion because they want it to be commercial. And I think that has stripped so much of um, the excitement of fashion. And I think well, that's there's a homogeneous to element to it, right? Yeah, I mean, they're used to. I mean. The collections would always have some sort of basic element in it, but you know, those basic elements were to be added into the collection to kind of create, you know, an, a stronger offering. It was never meant to be for some of those fashion houses the driving force, you know. That's a really good point. And I, and I was just sitting here thinking as well, like, I'm not trying to be like a buzzkill on luxury. Like, I think there are lots of really beautiful elements to like the finished product as well as, you know, what that, you know, like aspiration and inspiration are important things in our world. We're human. We want to strive towards you know, something, something else. Is there, is that part of the value of luxury brands, do you guys think, or having a luxury experience, yeah, I mean, however me, you define it? I don't mean to I mean, I've always, again. you know, I've worked with so many emerging designers in the last 10 years that have become almost like a new establishment. And for me, part of that whole luxury element has been also the, uh, the idea of supporting their hopes and dreams. And I love the idea that behind their names is that that drive and that hope to become something more. Well, because it's about beauty sometimes too, right? What about you, Natalie? I think, I mean, I when I think of what luxury is, it is things that are um, really beautiful and to some degree exclusive by the nature of the fact that they are using the best quality and more quality than is perhaps necessary, which, you know, there's a beautiful handbag and then there's a handbag that has... The leather that is, you know, so incredibly stunning that it's 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 above and beyond the function of the bag or of the dress because, you know, we just need to wear a dress or a suit to, to be clothed. And that sort of beauty element is what I think of as sort of what's important in luxury. Yeah, I mean, that some, dream, of, the, some of the most interesting things in fashion, like, function don't really play into it. No, and there's you know, that too. Then it goes the other know. way. <laughs> right. You try walking in those heels, baby. Yeah, seriously, with the beautiful red soul. <laughs> I, I do love a stiletto. <laughs> <laughs> he who rarely or if ever wears them. No, no. Well, you never know. Never know. Exactly. That's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys are looking into your crystal ball, because I know you both, you know, you're both steeped in pop culture and looking at like where we're ebbing and flowing. Where do you see this category going? Like, and you both, you know, have occasion to talk to emerging designers. Like, where where do you think this category and we'll think of luxury fashion in the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, if you had to, if you had to make a guess? Well, I mean, I don't think luxury is going anywhere. I mean, people have been um, ringing the bell of its demise for, for decades, you know. And, you know, I think... As long as it's interesting, there will be an audience for it. And um, 
you know, that's what's so exciting about fashion. It's just, it's a constant cycle. So I think, you know, it's a cycle of ideas. It's a cycle of names. It's a cycle of, of, um, of just different ideals. And I think it, it represents, you know, fashion as a whole represents so much of who we are as people at different times of, of, of our existence, you know, and I think it's, it's so important. What I'm starting to see is what you mentioned, Nicholas, the, the, the new guard or the new establishment there, I don't think ever going to be as all encompassing as these global brands because that moment has passed. And I don't know that that's necessarily their goal either, but we are seeing the second and third sort of tier of, of creators working in, in a niche and being successful at it on their terms. And I don't think that the consumer side is, is diminishing anytime soon. That consumer is largely insulated from the vagaries of economics and there's more and more millionaires and billionaires minted every day in in tech and globally so there's that's sure. always going to be there i think what would your wish be for the category like not what you think will happen but like like i hope that people continue to value well made beautiful things my wish would be that um they would create pieces true to their vision with integrity without a thought to a commercial existence. That is a big wish. It is a big wish, yeah. but you know, I, I fought very hard in my career to ensure that um, designers, the visions of the designers were represented wholly and with integrity in on the shop floor because I think you know, for people to be inspired by fashion and you you need to see the vision because I think that sometimes gets gets stripped from from selections. Or we or we assume it's not there. Like I think people who perhaps aren't um aren't in the industry, there can be an assumption that people become a fashion designer because they think it's a fast track to being a millionaire. When right. in fact there is a lot of artistic passion and integrity behind that drive. Although what it has become is is something of a treadmill. I mean, witness the constant changing of the guard at these historic and heritage houses. Every used to be every 4 to 5 years, now it's every 2 to 3 and sometimes it's a couple of seasons and because there is that pressure to produce and that's that speaks to sort of also these corporations being companies and they're having to deliver shareholder value Absolutely. and always having to best their numbers, which you know I don't know that that should be the first consideration, and maybe that's where I'm old-fashioned. My wish would be to to have all these different distinctions collapse, you know, everything from sort of middle to, I think you call it advanced contemporary and these other things. Well, it used to be called bridge. Bridge. You know, so. And to have there be more of well-made, just more well-made things and more people who understand why they have to pay for something that's well-made and work backwards from the price there rather than people having this artificial understanding or sort of an understanding that of an artificially low price. Yes. Because an $8 pair of jeans or, you know, an $80 pair of shoes, you can't fool yourself into thinking that that's going to last or that it's it's luxury. It's it's a lot of things, but that's not what it is. And I would like to see that kind of education at all levels, you know, be stronger. And I think it's happening. I think that's a great place to end the conversation, guys. Thank you so, so much for being here today. Um, I close all the podcasts with the same question, and that is if you um, had to wear one outfit for the rest of your life, climate notwithstanding, what would it be? Natalie, what would you wear? 
it's probably what I actually do wear every day of my life, which is <laughs> lucky you. Something like uh, I usually wear a pair of cropped jeans and loafers and some sort of topper, usually by a Canadian like Smythe or Comrags or Ivanica. That's pretty much it. And a t-shirt. Like I, I'm pretty simple. I'm not a fashion person either. <laughs> I mean, for me, I wear a, wh- a white shirt basically every day of my life. Um, sleeves rolled up. But I would also say a tuxedo because one should always be ready for a party. Excellent. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Nicholas, if people want to follow you or find out more about you, where should they look? I am Nicholas Me on both Twitter, Instagram, whatever social media is going to be up <laughs> whatever tomorrow. Whatever social media flavor. And Natalie, what about you? Uh, I'm on Instagram mainly because I, I really revel in visual culture. So you can find me there at Jaded Journalista. Excellent. Thank you so much, guys. You can follow me at This Is Donna B. And if you go to the website, fashiontalks.ca, you can see more information about Nicholas and Natalie and some images of the things we've th- talked about today. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner. You can find out more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards at CAFA Awards. That's C A F A W A R D S. Thanks to our wonderful sound engineer, Adam. Horzewski, and to Margarita Brighton, our production coordinator, and to Erica Dow, who did a lot of the research for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you feel inclined, please share the news about Fashion Talks with your friends and family and rate us and review us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Donna Bishop on Fashion Talks.